Well, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the 22nd chapter of Genesis, the first book in our Bible as we continue to make our way through it, walking with Abraham at this point in the story and seeing all that he has, has faced and uncovered. We come to somewhat of a climactic moment in Abraham's life. You see, we first encountered Abraham back in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, and he was introduced, and we found out that he had a wife named Sarah who had no children. She was barren. But then soon after, in Genesis 12, we heard the refrain of God that telling Abraham that I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation, and in and through you all the nations on the face of the earth will be blessed. So I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to others. That's good news. But oftentimes, that's the only news that you might hear. Christianity at times can be preached and proclaimed as this ideology that, guess what? God's blessed us, and we want to be a blessing to others, and it's a win-win, and that's all there is. But as the old Paul Harvey used to say, here's the rest of the story. The call to follow Christ, beloved, is a call to come and die. It's a call of sacrifice and surrender and submission of your life to the Lord. And it's so often revealed through the very thing that we see, maybe not obviously to this extent, but the very thing we see in Genesis 22, times of testing. It's that call for sacrifice and self-denial that often causes people, some just to run from Christianity totally when they hear that. For others, it causes them to stay at a distance. They want the God of the blessing, but they really don't want the blesser. They, they want all the good things in Christianity and, and, and everlasting life, but they do not desire the call to come and die, the call to deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And that were the words of our Savior. Let's be honest, I, I'm using the word they because it's often easier to talk about other people. But this is about us too, isn't it? The truth is, it's not just they, it's we who run from sacrifice. It's we who struggle to sing, I surrender all, and truly mean it. And so Genesis 22 comes to us and has this great moment of testing. And in that, we have to wrestle with, what is God worthy of? What is God truly worthy of? And Abraham's life says to us that God is worthy of our supreme obedience and our supreme trust. God is worthy of your and my supreme, uttermost obedience and our uttermost trust. And it's often during those times of testing that we clearly see or it's revealed where exactly is our level of obedience and test or trust in the Lord. And so today we're going to see this as the text kind of unfolds in three different parts. One is we're called to obey God when he tests you. Secondly, we trust God when he tests us. And third and last, we are to rest in God when he blesses us. So again, if you haven't, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. As we wrestle with this topic, will God ever test us? Will God ever bring testing into our lives? If so, what's God actually after in those moments? And what's it say about God and what's it say about us? So we look to our first truth today. Obey God when he tests you. Obey God when he tests you. Again, we've been walking with Abraham, and as we come in the 22nd chapter, guess what? Abraham and Sarah finally 
After 25 years, Abraham was now 100, Sarah was now 90, they finally had a child, his name was Isaac, and then there was fighting in the family between Isaac and Ishmael, and Ishmael was sent out, he with his mother Hagar, Abraham was struggling over that, but God reassures he's going to bless Ishmael, but he ultimately the line of promise is through Isaac. Isaac is the one that's going to bring the hope of the world, the hope of the nations, it's going to come through that line of Abraham. Which makes Genesis 22 all the more difficult and precarious. But again, nonetheless, we are called by the example of Abraham today to obey God when he tests you. Look what it says, beginning in verse 1 there in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The Lord says to him further, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's clear from the beginning that we know something that Abraham doesn't. Abraham has no idea that he's going through a time of testing. He doesn't. I mean, think about Job. It was similar, right? Job had no idea that he was going to face a time. He has no idea what's happened in the heavenly realms there as Satan is coming before God. Right? But the, the, the words or the reminder might be similar is, is guess what? Job loves you, God, because you blessed him. Abraham loves you, God, because you blessed him. You gave him a kid and all that. I mean, does he really love you deep in his heart? And that's, guys, that's what this testing is after. I mean, why would God ever test us or Abraham? Well, think about it. Why do you experience tests in your life? It's to reveal, right, your knowledge of some subject or your ability in some way to accomplish some task or skill. God here is testing Abraham, guess what, to reveal unto Abraham and unto us. It's the fact that he truly loved God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. Does Abraham love God more than anything? Does Abraham love God more than even his own son? Now, it's important we differentiate between testing and tempting. Why do I say that? Because James 1 verse 13 says this to us. It says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God is not tempting Abraham here, leading and enticing him to sin. God is testing. There's a differential that's important. So testing is not tempting. As James says, but we are all, right, by our own desires are dragged away and enticed. It is our own sinful nature that leads us into sin as the enemy tempts and works alongside of that. But again, this is providing a moment, this moment of testing to reveal the fact, is Abraham's faith true and genuine? So look what he says to him again. Verse 2, take your son, your only son whom you love. And notice what he says here. He says, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Look what he says, which I shall tell you or which I shall show you. Guess what? That's similar to what God had said to him originally in Genesis 12. Leave your family and your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. As hard as it would have been the first time to leave, right? His, his family, all of his, his home, his nation. This request of God, it's a totally different, right? Bobby Durrett would say it's a new ball game. Go and offer your son. Yet we read next. Some remarkable words in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Is that not remarkable? 
Abraham rose early in the morning. I mean, that's immediate obedience, isn't it? But that's what we've seen in Abraham. I mean, Genesis 12, God tells him, leave your family, your country, and go to the land I'll show you. Abraham saddles up and they ride off. What did we see last week, Genesis chapter 21, when, guess what, it's Sarah and there's all the tension in the family and, and she says, listen, send out Ishmael who have no place with my son. And God says, listen to your wife. And he sends his son out. I mean, it says early, the very words, early the next morning, he saddles the donkey, right, and sends off Ishmael and Hagar. And now this, God says, listen, go and sacrifice your son, your only son. Ishmael's gone. He's your only son. This is the son of the promise. This is the son you've been waiting on. This is the moment you've waited on all your life, Abraham. And early the next morning, he saddles a donkey. He gets two of his servants. He cuts the wood. And they head out. I think it should remind us that our faith isn't just a one and done. Like, oh, I got saved and I had faith then and there was a little time there while I was serious about Christianity, but that's been years ago. True faith, beloved, is ongoing obedience. It is a life of daily denial, right? That's what the Savior says to us. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It is a daily call to come and die. It is the proving of our faith that it's true and genuine by the bearing of fruit. As Adam was sharing with us earlier, it's this ongoing bearing of fruit, a life of repentance. Not some flash in the pan at some moment when maybe we had this emotional experience. Beloved, true salvation results in a new creation. And a new creation brings new fruit, new desires, new passion, a different way to talk, a different way to react, a different way to respond. It transforms us. So there's Abraham early in the morning. And they head out. Look what it says in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Contemplate that for a moment. Three days. Abraham's walking with his two servants and his only son. And he knows where they're headed. But they don't know what's going to happen there. Only Abraham knows. Can you imagine the heartache? Can you imagine how dark and lonely those three days must have been? But this third day word, it it begins to get picked up throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, having these great significant moments. It might be surprising to you, but guess what? Joshua and the people, when they cross the Jordan and go into Jericho, it's on the third day. Right? Jonah, he he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Or think about Esther. Right? Esther tells the people, listen, you and I, we will fast. And on the third day, I'll go before the king on behalf of God's people. In essence, listen, from this moment forward, the third day becomes this day of deliverance, a day of God acting on behalf of his people. And as God's people at this point in history, as we look back, we know that there was a greater third day coming, don't we? We know that there was, yes, there was a Friday when our Savior was crucified on that cross. We know that there was a second day, that Saturday, when he was buried and laid in that tomb. But, beloved, we are gathered on a Sunday morning, on the third day, to declare that our Savior is not still in the grave, but he has overcome the grave and overcome our sin. So is this moment of a third day, we ought to lift up our eyes. 
and say, we are third day people. We are those who believe that our God has overcome the grave. He has defeated our death. Thus Paul would say to the church, and maybe one of the most important creeds and earliest creeds of the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, and it says simply this, and that Christ was raised on the what? Third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I think maybe he's looking back to not only this moment, but those that we have given. I could give you many, many other third day moments in the Old Testament. He's saying that every third day moment ultimately look forward to the ultimate third day when Christ would be raised from the dead. But listen to Abraham's faith. It just continues. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, this is a moment where we wrestle with what exactly is Abraham meaning by the fact that they are going to go over there. And notice what he says, I and the boy. And he indicates that he and Isaac will return back. I'll be honest with you, there's some things about this I don't understand. But it seems to indicate that Abraham has a faith that believes in the words of Ephesians 3 and 20, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Is that your God this morning? I don't know what you're facing, what you're up against, but I'm telling you, there's a God who can do exceedingly, abundantly more than you and I could even begin to ask or even imagine. According to the power that is at work within us, to Christ be the glory. It's Paul's words in Ephesians 3. But Abraham's already seen that God is able to do more, right? He's already seen that God is able to bring life from death, right? He saw that his wife and he and his wife are not only old, but they had never had a child. And yet he at 100, Sarah at 90. But Paul seems to pick up on this moment in Romans chapter 4. It's, Romans 4 is rich with this story of Abraham and this example of faith. But listen just to this example. Paul says to us in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, I think looking back to Abraham's life, but even under this moment like this, and he says this, that God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God is able to bring life from the dead. And so there's this moment of faith and trust that Abraham has that I and the boy are going there. God's told me I'm going to sacrifice my only son. I don't know how exactly what God's, but I know that he's able to bring life from the dead. And so verse 6 says to us, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son! Isaac says to his dad, Dad, the fire and the wood are here! But where's the lamb? Dad, where's the lamb? Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Isaac is struggling to understand the moment. Abraham, Dad, what are we doing? We're going to make the sacrifice, but there's no lamb. Dad, what's the plan? And in the midst of Abraham, the greatest test of his life, he can look at his son and just simply say, Son, all I know is God's faithful. That's all I know. I can't see down the horizon. I can't tell you everything that's going to happen. But I know that God is faithful. What a moment. And oh, the imagery of this moment. Listen to this. Look at that again. Verse 6. 
So it says, and Abraham, notice what he does. He took the wood of the burnt offering, and notice what he does. He laid it on Isaac, his son. What, what imagery of an only son? He's got wood on his back, heading up the mountain. Come on now. Come on, church. I mean, I told Brother Todd, like, man, I was just like, man, this text just preaches itself. Like, this is just one you just got to get out of the way, man, because I'm telling you, like, this, this is, right, this is honey from the rock. Like, this just absolutely pours out on your life. Because it's an only son with wood on his back, heading to a place of sacrifice. Come on. We know that there was another son that's coming. An only begotten son. The son of God. Who will have wood on his back. An old rugged cross and he will climb up that hill to Calvary. Why? Because God so loved the world, beloved, that he gave his only begotten son that if this very moment you might believe, you shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the church said, Amen. It's the gospel. What a moment. Might we just ask here just for a moment, what might we learn from Abraham? And I think one of the reminders is this, in the midst of our testing, obey. Obey. We might ask, well, what's so big about obedience anyway? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You see, it's deeper than just our outward obedience. It's ultimately a condition of the heart. I mean, contemplate that for a moment. What you look at on screens like this and what you view week in and week out isn't just simply about obedience. It's something deeper. It says about whether or not you love God or you love yourself more. Are you seeking your own satisfaction or that of Christ? When we're tested to follow where God leads, it's not simply our obedience that is at stake. No, it is deeper. It's really about our hearts. Do we love Christ more than the things of this world? That's what's at at stake here. It's not just simply an act of obedience. Yes, it is that, but it ultimately reveals our hearts. For the first three days, Abraham has shown that when God tests you, you are to obey. But what will Abraham do when the moment actually comes? To that, we now turn to our second truth. Trust God when he tests you. Obey God when he tests you. But secondly, Abraham, in this example, shows us trust God when he tests you. Notice what it says here, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now we're not exactly sure, but it's likely at this point that Isaac is a teenager and Abraham's hundred. And it is more than apparent that there appears to be no struggle. Right? We just know, like physiology, our physiology, things just change, right? You're wrestling with a teenager who's growing stronger, and you got a man who's 100. And yet there indicates to be no struggle that Isaac is willingly getting on that altar and laying down. I thought, man, what an encouragement at us as fathers, but what a challenge that we might love our children so well and so tenderly, and our faith might be so evident that they would trust us even with their own lives. What a moment. Wow. 
looked again to the word. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. We may sing, trust, and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And that is true, beloved, but this is that to the ultimate degree. This is trusting and obeying. And might we ask in this moment, like, how could Abraham do this? How could he come to the place of being willing to take that knife in his hand to slay his own son? Well, guess what? As often happens in the Bible, other scriptures interpret the scripture you're reading. And this happens in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Hear what this says again. Looking back on this moment, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's in the act. That's what he's looking back to. Look at it says this, verse 19. This is key. Hebrews 11. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham can say that I and the boy will go and we will come back. Abraham can raise the knife because Abraham believes that God is able, even though it's mine, I'm sure can't comprehend it. He believes, the writer of Hebrews says, he is able to raise his son back from the dead. What faith! Amen to that. But might we say even more? What a God who's able to raise people from the dead. But in some way, isn't this this mirroring our lives? Isn't this why we as children of God face death differently? Because we have hope that God can and will raise those who are dead in Christ. I can't tell you how encouraged I've been by this flock. To stand by you, many of you, in dark hours. And Brother Todd and I have heard you all echo as you look down on the body of your dead loved one. That in the midst of your grief and sorrow, you have hope because Christ has overcome the grave. I want you to know that as your pastors, that encourages us. Like it, it challenges and uplifts my faith. How much more will it mean to your friends and your family as you share that same hope with them? Stay the course, beloved. But in this exact moment, as that knife is raised, we hear verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Wow. We might ask, what does it mean, right? Look what he says. For now I know. Notice what he says. He knows that he fears God. What does fearing God look like? It means not withholding his only son. It means looking like for you and I today, not withholding what is most valuable. It is giving God first place, not even our children or our spouse, our work, our hobbies. No, it is Christ and Christ alone that has first place in our hearts. It is that we are Matthew 6 and 33 people. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you as well. What a moment. Now listen, when God says back there, right? For now I know, right? There's no indication that God's like, oh man, I just now figured out, Abraham, you're really serious about me. No. 
God's always knows. He knows our heart. But in some way, this rewinds the story back to Genesis 15 and 6 when Abraham was declared righteous by faith. By faith. Not, not his works, by faith. But guess what? How do we know that that faith was true and genuine? How do we know that Abraham was truly a righteous man? By his fruit. By his obedience. It's the same way in our lives. Many people profess to have faith in God, but the Bible and church history have always said to us, you will recognize them by their fruit, by their obedience. Therefore, as the old saying goes, we are not saved, or we are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. Hear it again. We are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. In other words, true and genuine saving faith will always produce within us good works, obedience, and faith and trust in the Lord. And this moment, verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham looks, right? I mean, God said, hey, don't sacrifice Isaac. And so maybe we hear Isaac's question again, dad, where's the lamb? And just in that exact moment, seemingly, Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks. And there in the thicket, caught by its horns, is a ram. Notice what it says here. This is some of the more important language of the Bible. And Abraham went and took the ram. Notice what it says here. And he offered it up as a burnt offering, this language, instead of his son. It's what we know as substitutionary language, right? That there's a substitute, that somebody else. It's not that someone didn't have to die. There's, there's not saying, listen, this is not God wiping away any of our sin and saying, you know what? Your sin's not really that big a deal. No, someone had to die. But it's someone other than Isaac. It is a lamb that dies in his place. But notice again, the, the location is interesting. It's this place where this sacrifice is offered. And notice again, it's the mount on which the Lord it will be provided. It's Mount Moriah. It might interest you to know that this wasn't the only time a sacrifice happened at Mount Moriah. You see, the reality is, is that when Solomon goes to build a temple and David had already again purchased the land and those, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 reads this. Listen to this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now contemplate that for a moment. The temple is going to be built seemingly on this very place where Isaac was to be offered up and instead a a ram dies in his place. The imagery is now rich and deep because every time as the people come to the temple with their lambs, they are to remember back on this story and say, you know what, Isaac should have died that day. But the Lord provided a lamb instead of Isaac. And every day as they or as they come to make those offerings right there in the temple, guess what? And they bring forth that sacrifice. They are to be reminded, you know what? I should die this day. The wages of sin is truly death and I'm guilty. But the Lord has provided a sacrifice instead of. Now we know, guys, guys, we know, don't we? That this moment of substitution here points where an only son was saved on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem points toward an old rugged cross where another only son will die just outside of Jerusalem on that old rugged cross there on Mount Calvary, the place of the skull, Golgotha. It should have been us who died. It is us who deserves to pay the wrath, pay to God's judgment and suffer his wrath. But Christ 
willingly. Just as the story here. Instead of us, Christ dies in our place, taking the judgment of God on behalf of our own souls. Let us move our hearts to trust and obey Him no matter what sacrificing He demands from us. They trusted that God had provided as they went to those places to sacrifice. And we trust that He too has provided for us. So I encourage you, as you contemplate the ways in which God is moving your heart and the things He is calling you to sacrifice. A while ago, as we were singing, I surrender all. I was struggling. Let's be honest. Struggling with some areas of just surrender. And I just got quiet for a few moments. I just listened to you guys sing. As you sang, it was just kind of like that encouragement, like, Blake, just keep moving forward. Hearing you sing, I surrender all, all to Jesus. I'm like, Lord, I know that's what I should do. But listen, it's, it's as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that not only we sing, we sing yes to the Lord, but he says we also dress one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as you and I sing. Indeed, as we live our lives of obedience, we are compelling others, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. Because I don't know about you, I just got moments when I'm weak, man. Surrendering all feels costly and I'm afraid and I can't see down the road far enough and there's just moments of just inner fear and anxiety. But beloved, that's why we, again, another reason why we need the flock. We need one another. We need brothers and sisters who can walk beside us in faithful obedience. So Abraham has shown us that there is indeed no other way but to trust and obey. That's how we walk through these tests. That's the only way to be happy in Jesus And third and last, we come to this truth, to rest in God when he blesses you. Again, I talked about blessing others earlier, and we're thankful for that. And again, that's not all there is, but it is part of the Christian life. And so, again, in response to this moment comes this final words that God will speak to Abraham as recorded in Scripture, right? This is the final time, and God's speaking to Abraham. Listen to what he says. This is just this climactic moment of Abraham's life. Let's read verses 15 to 19 in the Lord's Word. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply. Listen, these are words we've been echoing through different chapters. Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The blessing to Abraham is reaffirmed following this moment. Again, Abraham, like all who have ever been accepted by God, come by grace alone, through faith alone. But listen, this is transforming his life. It's transforming the way he lives. And so he listened. God says, listen, yes, you absolutely. Are we saved by grace through faith? Amen. But beloved, again, it results in this obedience, this submission to the Lord as God transforms our hearts and continues to bear witness. Do you hear that? It's not just, hey, I made a good confession sometime back in my childhood or my 20s or my 40s. And that's been long ago. No, we continue to make the good confession by bearing fruit. By gathering with the flock, by living lives of submission and obedience. And that's Abraham's life. He just continues to give evidence that, yes, he was declared righteous by faith, but his faith is alive. And so, again, as Abraham is going to prepare soon to step off the pages 
Isn't that humbling? That even the greatest men of God and the greatest women of God, unless the Lord returns, they do step off the scene. And that will be you and that will be me, beloved. Are you prepared for that day? Are you living today in preparation for that day? Listen again. The final words from God to Abraham are, Blessed are you because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will bless you and I will make your descendants great and I will bless the nations through you because you have obeyed my voice. In other words, Abraham hears what we all want to hear from God on that day. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. What a moment to end his life, to hear God saying, well done done my good and faithful servant and beloved that is what the christ has promised to all those who continue in the faith and abide in him he promises there will come a day when he will look us in the eye and say well done my good and faithful servant let that spur you on this day to not grow weary in your faith to not grow lazy but to continue pressing forward toward the promises of god but as we close i'm going to draw your attention here just to how god speaks to abraham he promises that again Notice what he says here throughout this different moments. He says to him about, I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. Your offspring, notice that it's important, shall possess the gates of his enemies. It's interesting, right? Some of the languages used. He may have footnotes there that are going to say our enemies. There's some tension happening in the text. And so, but it seems to indicate that in verse 16 and 17, that, that God's blessing Abraham is looking out through the nations of how those will all be blessed, his descendants. But as he comes down more, it seems to get more and more specific that there's someone else coming, a different offspring. It's Paul who picks up on this in the New Testament and gives us clarity to what we may wonder is happening here. And just hear now the word of God in Galatians 3 and 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, listen to what Paul says, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Listen to what Paul says, who is Christ. He says that ultimately this looks forward to one offspring who will come from the line of Abraham. One indeed who will come from the line of Genesis 3 and 15 there in the garden that God's first promise, the first proclamation of the gospel that the enemy would strike his heel but you would crush his head. The promise of a deliverer that was going to come from a virgin's womb. You see that's why we're getting excited about Christmas even now. That's why we get excited about genealogies, because we look and we say, oh, there's Abraham. And we know that from the line of Abraham will ultimately come one, an offspring, who will bring about our deliverance of our own souls. You see, it's not just about having right genetics. It's ultimately revealing to us God is faithful to his promises. It may take thousands of years. You and I will come and go just like so many before us have come and gone. But God will remain forever, beloved. And he will accomplish all of his purposes and not one of his words will fail. And so it was as we look toward Christmas and begin to celebrate that there has finally come the offspring of Abraham who will make an end to our sin by dying instead of us. So to the unbeliever this morning, it's interesting if you consider Abraham's story, I don't know how long you've been with us, unbeliever. You may have been with us for weeks, or this could be your first Sunday, I don't know. But when we first encountered Abraham, it was Genesis 11. And the Tower of Babel was there. And men were trying to build this tower to get their self to God, to make a name for themselves. And God confused the language. And, but at the end of that chapter, this other man showed up by the name of Abram, Abram, who we now know as Abraham. 
And his story finally ends climactically at this place of sacrifice. And it's there that his faith ultimately, right, that declaration of I'm going to bless and reaffirm my promises, saying to us, listen, the way to God is not the ways of man. You'll never be good enough. You'll never earn it on your own. You can never do enough to get yourself to God. No, the story of the Bible comes in this climactic moment in Abraham's life saying the way to God is through the substitutionary death of Christ ultimately on the cross. Is that your way to God? How do you plan to get to God, beloved? Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what, church? Through me. I urge you, non-believer, the call to come and die is costly. I will not minimize that for a moment to you. I want to be up front. It is a call to come and die. But I want you to know that if you keep following the ways of man, that's the way of death. And that's death eternal. I urge you to come and die today to yourself. Quit building your own towers and rest in the finished work of Christ. To the church. I think we ought to collectively consider how are we sacrificing in response to what God's done to us? As a church, would this community look at this body of believers collectively and say that is a group of people who are faithfully striving to serve. They love one another. They love this community. They're passionate about the nations. And in that, right, I mean, while we are collective, you need to ask yourself individually, what part are you playing in that? If your response to what God has done for you is just simply, I'm going to show up on a Sunday morning, I'm going to punch my ticket and head out. Beloved, I just want to be really transparent with you. That's not it. There's more. It is a life of denial and surrender daily. And that does not mean that the only time we can do that is when we gather as a church. I'm not saying that. But I want to ask you, what place do you have amongst the people of God as you serve alongside of us? Are you ministering with us? If not, let this text urge your heart and mind back forth. Ah, that's where I should be headed. That's the example I am to follow. I urge you, beloved, especially as I begin to step off the scene, I urge you, do not put your hand to the plow and look back. Keep walking faithfully with the Lord. To others in this room, This text is going to bring to your heart and mind maybe things that you've been wrestling with for some time or maybe just starting today or maybe in the weeks or years to come. For some, that will be a wrestling of ministry. God is calling and urging you forth to come and proclaim the gospel and to minister to his people. For others, it will be a call to leave your family in Greensburg, KY, and go to the nations for the sake of the name. For others, it will be simply the obedience to teach a class or to begin faithfully helping us serve in some area of ministry here. But all of us have a response to Christ and the gospel. What is yours? Abraham shows us it is by trusting and obeying. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Christ and what he has done for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Abraham these thousands of years ago now, faithfully submitting to you. Lord, I know that each of us have areas in which we are failing and struggling to surrender and submit to you. Father, now by the power of your word, through the spirit of God who gives life and calls things that are not as though they are, Father, that you might through your spirit resurrect within us life 
out of death. That you might change our passions and desires, O God. We pray that you would cause us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else will be added to us as well. Lord, let us put you first. Let us deny ourselves. Let us be people of sacrificial obedience. Father, may our obedience seem foolish in the eyes of family and friends and all those who do not know and walk with Christ. God, let us treasure you. Treasure you, God. You are worthy of that treasure. You are worthy of our greatest sacrifice. Father, now fill us more with your Holy Spirit that we might obey you joyfully and not reluctantly. Let us be moved, God, now as we think about how we'll give in a few moments to Operation Christmas Child to proclaim your name amongst the nations, how we'll move in a few hours, Lord, Lord willing, tomorrow to serve and minister this community. God, move this church in response to your word to obey and follow you and to do it for the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, Lord. And the church said, amen.